Hello and welcome to A Very Okay Podcast. My name is Trey Thompson. I'm the director of the Oklahoma Historical Society and with me as always is Dr. Bob Blackburn. Bob, it is always great to see you. I can't tell you how much I always look forward to getting together and talking about Oklahoma history. Well, Trey, you're doing a good job of picking topics and today a topic that is especially dear to you after six and a half years working on the Capitol Restoration, a building that is so important to all Oklahomans. And uh, so I want to thank you for a job well done and in including the Oklahoma Historical Society in that project. We had the original plans here. I remember when you came over with the architects to digitize those and all the artifacts that, that related to the history and the, the museum that we worked on together. Yes. So uh, it was a good project. So I've been looking forward to this as well. Well, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, we had worked together when I was a staffer in Pro Tem Brian Bingman's office. But then when I moved over to the Capitol Project, you know, one of the first things we got to do together on that project was to kick it off in July of 2014 because that was actually the 100-year anniversary of the groundbreaking ceremony for the Capitol. And you brought over that silver-plated pickaxe that Governor Cruz had used to break break ground, and you let me hold it, <laughs> which I just thought, with gloves on, mm-hmm. but I just thought was one of the coolest things in the world. And we got to work together so many times on that project on, and on different aspects. People would always want to know the history of the Capitol, so we would work through that. And like you said, we came over here and used... Not only the uh, we found the original drawings, but our construction folks wanted to see those original photos of the building being built. Because one of the things about how building trades were done back in those days, the architectural drawings were really more of a suggestion or a guideline. Mm-hmm. And it was up to the builder in the field to really make it work. And so a lot of times they would change things as they were going along. And so those photos that we have in our OHS archives were really key to helping everyone understand how the building was put together. Well, and, you know, it's a little bit of fortunate history that the Oklahoma Historical Society had been created 1893 before the Capitol, before statehood, 1895 Territorial Agency, 1907 State Agency, and we were one of the first occupants in it. The Oklahoma Historical Society ran the museum in the basement there in those early years. So we were right there in the middle of the process, and uh, thanks to our curators back then and uh, Mr. Campbell, who was the curator at the time, they were gathering those materials knowing those would be important artifacts for us in the future. I have to tell you, this is something that is a bit of personal pride for me, but I remember calling Bob, oh, this was maybe two or three years into the project, and you know, occasionally reporters would call and want, want to know some bit of history about the Capitol. And I called Bob and said, hey, do you want to come speak to this reporter? They're asking questions about the history of the Capitol. And Bob told me, I'll never forget this as long as I live because it means so much to me. Bob said, Trait, you know as much about the Capitol as I do. Why don't you just do that interview? And I just thought, whoa. (laughs) I think I walked two feet off the ground for the next week after that because Dr. Bob Blackburn is telling me that I am like somewhere in his league on something of history. It was a big moment for me. Well, and, and you deserved it because I, I, I saw you developing during that project and gaining confidence. And, of course, for you to do that project properly because there was so much unknown. We, don't, we didn't have the paint schemes. Uh, he didn't know the colors. He didn't know some of the uses of the building were a mystery. You know, you saw what was on the plans. But you did the research and you made sure stayed true to the, to the basic nature and the beauty of the capital. 
and then incorporated the changes that have been made over the years and tried to figure out what are the next needs of that state capital. And I think you accomplished it very well. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And and I certainly don't ever want to give the impression that this was a one-man show because the restoration of the Capitol was literally hundreds and hundreds of people. Everyone from the architects and the engineers who helped plan the work and make sure it was all being done correctly, to the construction folks and the teams who worked out all the logistics. We worked in an occupied building the entire time of that project, which was no small feat. And then, you know, one of the things that I'll never forget about the restoration is uh, we dug up the entire basement because we had to put all new subterranean plumbing in. We had to put in all the conduit for the electrical. And I just remember workers, a whole line of them, wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow, hauling dirt out one wheelbarrow at a time and just thinking, these people are incredible. I mean, the amount of work that it takes. There wasn't a machine that was going to do it. There wasn't, you know, there, there wasn't an easy way to do it. It was one wheelbarrow at a time. So you talk about that level of hard work and dedication that went into this. And then I think about our stonemasons. I think about the people who restored the windows. There was just so much love that went into that building. Everybody working on there knew that they were not only working for themselves, but their children and grandchildren were going to get a chance to really enjoy and experience that building. And so not a one-man show by any stretch. I feel very privileged and very blessed that I got to be a part of that project and that I got to help in some way, form, or fashion it be successful. But um, it was a team effort, and Oklahomans and people from really all across the country pitched in and made that project what it was. You know, another challenge you had, Trait, and uh, it's one of the things when I worked on the museum exhibit, started writing that copy, I wanted the title to be We the People. And in a, in a way, that was a challenge for you and the architects and everyone planning the restoration because there's no one entity that controls the capital. It is really the home. It's our home, the people of Oklahoma, the citizens. Uh, and because government is really just a, a combination of of people working for the common good. We elect the officials, we have commissions that are appointed and confirmed and people serving the state's needs. Uh, but that lack of centralized authority over the Capitol is something you had to deal with, is that you had the House of Representatives and the Senate and the Governor's Office, the Supreme Court, all of these different entities who felt like this was their their terrain, when in fact it is the property of the people of the state of Oklahoma. And so you were working for all the citizens from Cimarron County to, to uh, Choctaw County. And uh, that, that added to the difficulty. But I think that what people see now, if they go to the Capitol, if they go to the Little Museum, if they see the documentary we'll talk about here in a minute, uh, I think they will see that the spirit of the project was, was on target from the very beginning really starting with the with the dome project that we'll talk about here in a few minutes. Uh, so from the early 2000s uh, all the way to, to present day, it's still unfolding. You're still trying to put together a, a you know, a, a completion date. But uh, I think it tr- stayed true to the, to the nature of what the capital means to all of us in Oklahoma. Let's get into that a little bit. And our capital has kind of a wild and woolly story. Our capital city starts out in Guthrie. And then June 11th, 1910 is when there's an election to choose between Guthrie, Oklahoma City, and Shawnee. And so 
What's going on in Guthrie around that time, and why why did Charles Haskell want to get the heck out of Dodge, <laughs> so to speak? Well, the, if it is a problem, or at least the issue began when Congress, in the Enabling Act, says, yes, you can put together a constitutional convention, you can create a state, but the capital will stay in Guthrie. And at the time, Congress, uh, strongly Republican majority, uh, the President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, Republican, uh, most of the state of, or the territorial officials, officials have been appointed by a Republican president. Guthrie was a Republican town. Uh, the Guthrie Daily Leader, Frank Greer, the combative editor, probably one of the, the great journalists in Oklahoma history, was a staunch Republican and uh, used the pages of the newspaper to attack the devil Democrats. Yeah. You know, that would have been his approach at the time. And uh, so by federal law, when it became a state on November 16, 1907, the capital was in Guthrie. Of course, it was in rented facilities. It was different parts of government were spread around town. And the first governor, Charles Haskell, was a Democrat from Muskogee who came in uh, and just locked horns with Frank Greer. Well, and we were an overwhelmingly Democrat state, too. Yes, the Indian Territory, strongly, most of the Indian tribes had been Democrats from the Old South. So in terms of, of Southern traditions, it came with the five civilized tribes in Oklahoma. And then so many of the settlers, even in Oklahoma City, uh, largely to the South and West, came from Texas and Mississippi and Louisiana and the Old South. Uh, like my own family, we come from Virginia and Texas on one side of the family, the other South Carolina and Arkansas. Well, that's typical of many Oklahomans. And those Southerners brought in the Democratic Party politics at the time, and so it was a majority. Uh, Tulsa was an outlier because of the mid-Atlantic uh, investors who were bringing the oil industry in from the old oil patch of Pennsylvania and southern New York, southern Illinois. So you get – Tulsa has always been a little different culturally from the rest of the state, strong Republican. The Cherokee outlet was largely Republican because of the settlement patterns in 1893 and the farmers coming in from Kansas, Nebraska, Illinois, Iowa – and so you have this political balancing act when the first governor, the first legislature meets in Guthrie. And, you know, we think to, that today politics is bare-knuckle fighting. Well, it's got nothing on what it was like in 1907. Yeah. Uh, there would be journalists in a town that would get into fistfights and gunfights uh, and uh, – a professor at OSU, Norbert Mankin, one of my mentors, wrote an article one time and and called the article Black Ink and Vitriol. And that's the way it was. They had a voice. And this is the time before radio, before television, before mass communication of any other sort. It was the newspaper was a way to reach a broad audience. And using the black ink to express an opinion and then adding the vitriol is that, hey, we're not shy. We are a Republican newspaper, and we're going to go after the other party. The Democratic newspapers would say the same thing. Yeah. Oklahoma City at the time was a Democratic town. Even E.K. Gaylord, who had come to Oklahoma City in, in 1904 and bought part interest in the Oklahoman, uh, was a Democrat. Charlie Cockord, the richest man in the territory, who had invested in the first wells uh, in Glenpool, had made a fortune in real estate, the first chief of police in Oklahoma City. Democrat. So Oklahoma City was largely a Democratic town, Guthrie largely a Republican town, and in both camps, people willing to duke it out publicly, and of course that spilled over into the political process. Who was going to support the next candidates? 
who is going to be in a position to win the next election. You, you add that volatility to a very personal uh, political landscape where people are involved. If you go to, a, to the grocery store around the Cracker Barrel, people are talking politics. An idea of fun is to listen to a politician give a three-hour speech. Uh, campaigns pulled people together for parties and barbecue. Uh, the politics was different then. It wasn't some distant thing that you wait until you go to the ballot box. It was every day. And that was the situation in, in night, from 1907 to 1910 as that first state government is really creating the state of Oklahoma's governance. When that election is held in 1910 and it becomes pretty clear that uh, Oklahoma City is going to be what the people selected it to be the new state capital, I don't think people in Guthrie expected that it would move that very night. Uh, the Enabling Act said Guthrie would be the capital until 1913. So I think Guthrie probably thought, well, if we lose, we've got some time. You know, we can always come back, maybe do another initiative petition and or, you know, fight it out in the courts. Uh, Charles Haskell, He's in Tulsa. He commissions his train to take him back to Oklahoma City. He calls W.B. Anthony and says, uh, go get the state seal. Uh, we're, we're, we're moving to Oklahoma City tonight. And, of course, the people in Guthrie lost their mind. I don't want to get too much into the state seal. Was it stolen? Was it not stolen? The fact remains is that uh, Haskell didn't wait a minute and moved to Oklahoma City and said, this is the new seat of government. And, uh, and Guthrie, of course loses its mind, and they immediately file a lawsuit in the, uh, in the state Supreme Court. And the state Supreme Court will come back and rule that um, because of a technicality, that election is tossed out. And then the legislature will meet in December of 1910, and they will establish Oklahoma City as the capital through legislation. And then also they'll pick the site of the capital on land donated from the Harn and Culbertson families at 23rd and Lincoln, which at that point was just farmland, kind of in the middle of nowhere, about two miles north of the city center, north and east of the city center in Oklahoma City. Um, but that's what gets us to uh, the uh, capital site being selected. And then Guthrie is not to be not to be dissuaded, they get enough signatures for an initiative petition, and there's another ballot initiative. In 1912, we go to the, the polls again, vote for Oklahoma City again, and that finally seems to put the matter to rest. We can finally build the capital at that point. You know, Trey, you mentioned location. Location is so important in any city and what's happening. Well, the two best proposals to, to the government – uh, was Harn and Culbertson the deal here, and it was only about two miles from Oklahoma City. If if you could remove a lot of the buildings, you're kind of on high ground looking down on Oklahoma City. And so you go towards the river, of course, it goes downhill. High ground being a, a relative term, but yes. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but the, the best proposal, the most generous proposal, was Israel M. Putnam, yes. after whom Putnam City is named, wanted to, to grant a lot of acres, raise the money to build a capital, but it was going to be as far west as Meridian on 39th Street, on the inner urban as it went out west. And that was going to be so far away, city leaders like E.K. Gay, e. Gaylord and Charlie Calcord and and Joseph Huckins and the people who are in this conversation say, we don't want that that far away. We want this to be part of the city. Well, one last little note on the location, because it's here at 23rd, what would become Lincoln eventually. When uh, Epworth College finally folds and leaves Oklahoma City in 1911, uh, the medical school has to go somewhere. 
the legislature says we need a state medical school instead of the private medical school. So it's going to be part of state government. Well, typically it would have gone to the university town, but not enough doctors in Norman to, to serve as faculty. So it had to stay in Oklahoma City. So where do they put that first medical school that, that state sponsors? just south of the Capitol on 13th Street. That becomes the seed that's planted for the Health Science Center yeah. of today that is driving so much of the economy of Oklahoma City and Oklahoma and coming up with cures to diseases and serving people and just doing so much for our quality of life. So location was important. Yeah, and it was a great location. It was not too far via streetcar, although it was, you know, like I said, out in the middle of farmland. But yeah, the I am Putnam site, uh, while it might have been good, it was about a 30-minute streetcar ride from downtown Oklahoma City. And the stockyards were fairly close by, and it smelled out there. And lawmakers <laughs> decided we don't like that site out there. It smells a little funny. Uh, to some, might be smells like money, but mm -hmm. uh, but they said uh, we're going to go up northeast of of downtown Oklahoma City, and that's the site that they ended up working out. So uh, we get an architect on board, and I want to talk about this a little bit. The architecture firm that designed the Capitol was Layton and Smith. Solomon Layton had been born in Iowa. He came to Oklahoma in 1902. He set up his uh, his shop as an architect in in El Reno and then uh, ultimately moved into Oklahoma City. So by that 1912, 1911, 1912 timeframe, he's already a pretty prolific architect in Oklahoma. And he has designed, I, I mean, the list of things he's designed in the state of Oklahoma, schools, courthouses, university buildings, homes, uh, and then he gets the shot and they designed the Oklahoma State Capitol building. He's got over 50 buildings on the National Register of Historic Places. Yeah, Two-thirds of the, of the uh, county courthouses or more designed by he. and a, He had different partners, uh, Hicks, Forsyth. But uh, before he got this job, he had designed the old Pubco building for E.K. Gaylord when he organized the Oklahoma Publishing Company. He had designed Oklahoma High School which later became Central High School. Today, it's the law school for the OCU uh, law, or library, or excuse me, law school for OCU. And he had been prolific, and he loved that neoclassical look. And so he was the architect of that time and was knew how to get the jobs, knew how to work with the elected officials, and knew how to work with construction companies at the time. And uh, his fingerprints are all over this project. Yeah, and, and one of the things I always like to talk about is the this capital was designed to have a dome, but we didn't put a dome on the building. And uh, there's some myths that I always like to try to dispel about why we didn't do that. First of all, our budget to build the capital was $1.5 million, which even today we can lose that much money in the couch cushions at the capital. But back in those days, it's a hefty sum of money. But compared to other similar capitals, it was about a million dollars short. So James Stewart and company that built the Capitol had just come off building the Utah Capitol, and their budget was $2.5 million. And so Oklahoma City, because of what you had mentioned, we had been paying rent in downtown Oklahoma City office buildings for years. You know, you figure by the time we start building the Capitol in 1914, we're a, a state for seven years. By the time the building is finished, we're a state for 10 years. We were tired of paying rent. So we want to get a Capitol build big enough to put all of state government underneath that one roof. But when you look at the, the cost of the dome, 
So the building was costing a million and a half dollars. Up to $500,000 was what it was going to be to put the dome on the building. And so early on in the project, and this is in 1914, they decide we're going to wait on the dome. The legislature says you're going to put the structure in place to hold the weight of a dome in case somebody wants to come on and put it later, which uh, which turns out to be a good decision. But um, we didn't run out of money. I hear that one a lot. We ran out of money, and that's why we didn't build the dome. Well, no, we knew ahead of time we weren't going to have the money to put the dome on. And then also, I always hear about material shortage during World War One, and that's why we didn't build the dome. And that's not true either. That in all my research I've done, that never really enters into the conversation about materials. It's it's a pure. I have a million and a half dollars. I have to get a building this big to get everybody into the building. So what's the first thing to go? That that pretty little ornamental piece that doesn't really serve much of a function. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why we didn't put the dome on the building. Although. Solomon Layton, you can go back. We have those drawings in our archives. It was always intended to have a dome. And, you know, Trey, that kind of leads into why we had so many years without a dome, is that the nature of Oklahoma politics is that the way the Constitution was written, the legislature has been dominant over the years. Uh, it was a weak governor system, and that's the way the people of Oklahoma wanted it. They feared central authority. They wanted their own people coming from their communities to the capital. Well, and at the time, legislature met only every other year. So they would come in, in in the winter, stay until the late spring, and go home. So they were here three or four months a year, every other year. And to them, success was what could they do for their district back home. Success was not embellishing the capital and adding a very expensive dome. If there was an extra million dollars, they wanted to split it up into more highways, uh, support for county government, uh, support for the, for the health system or whatever it might be, these services that their voters wanted. So it, w- it went against the nature of Oklahoma politics to centralize any kind of an expenditure in the capital city, especially when most people in rural Oklahoma thought, oh, those snobs in Oklahoma City just want more for their quality of life. And so it just li- uh, lingered for years where the dynamics were never there to say, let's finish that dome and appropriate enough money to do it. And that was it was a controversial decision. There were people across the state, some of them who thought, we have to put a dome on to finish our capital. Others who thought, total waste of money. Stephen Douglas, who was on the Capitol Building Commission, said, in modern architecture, the dome has no place. It would cost $250,000 to put one on this building, and it would, however, be all expense without any use whatsoever. Robert Williams said, I'm not against putting a dome on the Capitol, but I do think the time is right just now is... I do not think the time is right just now for spending that much money when the state is in need of so many other necessary and useful uh, institutions. And so um, uh, the Durant Democrat, though, had an editorial where they said, there has been much ridicule poked at those who believe the Oklahoma State Capitol should have a dome. Just why this should bring forth such scorn, we are at a loss to understand. No one denies that it will add beauty to the structure, Oklahomans do not believe in doing things in a halfway manner, and we believe they would like to see a dome placed on the Capitol building. Mm-hmm. So you had differing opinions on that, but it ultimately it all came down to dollars and cents, and we didn't have the dollars. Or as Robert Williams said, we wanted to put those dollars to, to other uses, so we decided not to put it on. Now, 
you're familiar with Robert Williams, third governor of the state of Oklahoma. Uh, the project, the Capitol building project was started during the Lee Cruz administration, but Robert Williams took it over. And really, he's the one who finished it up. And if there was ever a micromanager as from everything, from how the building looked to what kind of money we were spending on it, it was Robert Williams. Well, and to R.L. Williams was from uh, Hugo. It's where he lived at the time, uh, Little Dixie. And uh, we have his collections in the Oklahoma Historical Society. He was on our board of directors after he left the governor's office. He uh, went on to the Oklahoma Supreme Court for many years, but loved history. And we have correspondence, and I'll never forget looking through some of his correspondence. He was kicking little little widows out of a rent home because they hadn't paid their $5 a month rent. That tracks. This guy, uh, you know, knew how to hang on to a nickel until he could squeeze it. And uh, he... Uh, he was very practical and uh, a little sanctimonious at times. He, uh, you know, even though we had a weak governor system, most governors think that they know best and that if everyone would just listen to them, everything would be okay. And uh, Williams was one of those. He, he was a very capable person, uh, very literate, good writer. And, uh, but he was kind of a skinflint little, little, yeah. little bachelor guy. Yeah, it's a really interesting. I found this great story, and this tracks with his reputation as well. He was walking the job site one day, and they were putting the stone on the exterior of the building, and he notices a stone on the front part of the building that's a little bit discolored. And so he's really unhappy about it. He calls over the superintendent for James Stewart and Company, a man with the last name of Fredrickson, and he says, that stone's discolored. I want you to take it off, put a, put a different one up there. The superintendent says, well, you know, it's going to cause all this extra work and then it'll it'll decrease the stability of the stones around it. We'll, we'll give you a $5,000 credit to the project just to leave it up there. Robert Williams was having none of it. And by the way, I did the math on this. $5,000 in 1916-17 is equal to $128,000 credit today. So no small potatoes. That was a pretty nice gesture. Anyway, um, they... do. Robert Williams is not budging. Take that discolored stone off my capital. They finally agree that they're going to go into arbitration. They go into arbitration over this stone. After the end of all this process, everyone agrees, just leave the stone up there. You know, it's not hurting anything. <laughs> leave the stone up there. But he was not happy about it. He, he <laughs> was really upset about that. I tried to go find that stone because it had a fairly good description of where it was. And I went and walked to the front of the building and I couldn't find it. Over the years, the, the coloration and the elements have made it blend in with all the other stone. So if Robert Williams is listening out there, it didn't turn out so bad. You know, <laughs> That's a good story. I had not heard that. I found that, I think, in an article that was published in the 1950s in the Oklahoma newspaper. And it was somebody recounting the story of the Capitol being built. And, uh, oh, I can't tell you how much I loved reading that story when I found it because it just tracked so well with him. Mm -hmm. The Capitol was finished in, uh, in June the 30th of 1917, and uh, I found this, this quote. So the legislature moved in January the 2nd, 1917, first day of the legislative session. The legislature moved in before the building was finished because they, they were done paying rent in downtown. And uh, Representative D.B. Collins said, when the pounding of the hammers got too loud, the legislature had to adjourn for the day or else go into some other part of the building. And I have to say, that gave me some PTSD a little bit because 
Uh, we made so much noise during the Capitol project. And as you know, we never emptied out the building during that entire time. And so I can't tell you how many times we were making noise and I would get a call from Governor Fallon and or someone in her office going, Governor's having a press conference. Can you guys stop the noise? Or, you know, that we're doing the window restoration and we had these thin partitions that was between the guys that were working and the people on the other side who were trying to do their daily office work and there was weird smells and there was noises. So Representative Columns really resonated with me as he's talking about trying to get some work done in this unfinished capital that was not heated uh, and there was noise and dust everywhere. I'm like, well, that was the, you know, six or seven, eight years of the Capitol Restoration Project. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, of course, World War One. We go, we we go into uh, April sixth of nineteen seventeen. United States enters World War One. So we don't have a large celebration. The, we don't have a big parade. We don't have any grand fireworks or festivities when the Capitol opens. It just um, we open up the building and we go on about business because our attention is on other things. And so uh, as we go into a little bit more of the capital project, I uh, always like to talk a little bit about um, one of the unique things about our capital is if you come up to the exterior of it, you see this giant oil derrick on the, on the front side of the building. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, our, our penchant for drilling oil anywhere and everywhere we find it, including right up to the base of the capital? Well, of course, the Oklahoma City oil field uh, blew in December of 1928, but it was at Southeast 59th and Bryant. So as far as it was seven miles south of the Capitol building, and but the field started moving towards the north, got to the river, leaped across into neighborhoods on the north side of town. Then the city council said, no more drilling in these zones. And so they tried to, to do zoning to say, keep these drilling pads out of your backyards. Uh, but then we have a new governor elected in 1934, took office in February 1935, E.W. Marlin, who was an oil man mm -hmm. who created Marlin Oil in Ponca City that became Conoco. E.W. Marlin knew the value of the oil under the Capitol and under the laws of Oklahoma. The first to grab that oil gets it. And so he knew that if they were drilling wells around and it was sucking the oil from out underneath, the state was going to lose that revenue. So he defied the city uh, fathers and says, no, this is state land. This is not city land. Your zoning laws have no effect here. And he was right under the law. He allowed that first drilling. And as they started drilling wells up the median, at one point, there were probably a dozen oil wells from 13th Street to 23rd Street. And when they got to the Capitol, they knew there was oil under the Capitol. And everyone thinks that horizontal drilling is brand new. Well, it's not. They had that in the 1930s. So when they drilled what they called Petunia Number 1, they did a 70% slant drilling, and that is considered horizontal drilling. Now, it was very difficult. would have yeah. taken a great driller with rotary at the time because you don't know what's going on down hole, but they could manipulate it where they actually went below the capital, pulled oil. A mile and a half below. A mile and a half, and that was still pumping when I started work for the Oklahoma Historical Society in 1979. So and many of those wells up and down uh, uh, Lincoln, were still producing. There were still uh, oil tanks on state property at the time, and there were there were several wells on the west side, and I was able to get one of those derricks. The Senate wanted more parking spaces, so they were going to take out another derrick, and that just killed me losing another historic derrick. Yeah. So I went to the pro tem at the time, Stratton Taylor, and I said, Senator, uh, 
I won't embarrass you in the public about Terry not part of historic Oklahoma City's history here, but if you'll pay to have it moved over to the new side of the Oklahoma History Center, we'll make it part of an exhibit. Well, we have that oil, Derek, right here on the grounds of the History Center. But oil was very important, not only for the revenue, but it changed the landscape. And if you understand the importance of oil and gas in the history of Oklahoma, it's a point of pride. And uh, Governor Keating, whose father was in the oil business in Tulsa, had been in Pennsylvania, saw that. And he was the one that raised the money. And Phillips Petroleum donated some money, and they came in and fixed up those tanks and painted them. And they, they, I think they plugged the well at the time. 1986 is when they plugged the well. Was that it? And uh, I remember I went to the dedication of that. In fact, I may have spoken at that dedication. But uh, to me, I'm glad that's there, and I'm glad when you, you all did the renovation of the Capitol grounds, that was continued to be a part of the project. Well, it's kind of funny. I posted a picture of the Capitol. This has been two or three years ago. And somebody who I didn't know uh, had a comment on there. They said, why did they put that oil derrick off-center from the Capitol building? And... <laughs> You know, as if it was done in a decorative manner. And I had to respond to them. I said, well, I think they just drilled where the oil was. I don't think they cared about the aesthetics of it. And that's really true. If you look mm-hmm. at photos of the Capitol from the 1940s and 50s, there were oil der- derricks just dotting all around the Capitol grounds. And nobody cared. It was really about this idea of of getting the revenue from the oil, just like you said, what E.W. Marlin was interested in. And, you know, we were able – there are still – oil wells now not directly directly right next to the capital but there are still oil wells that still produce around in the capital complex area and uh, we were interested in that and today there are two large derricks that are adjacent to the capital one that's right in front that's that petunia number one or state capital well site number one and then there's one directly behind the capital to the north and the west uh, that that still exists and both of those are capped off and don't produce anymore but it's an important part of our history, and it tells an important story about uh, about the revenue that we gain in oil as an importance to our state. Uh, the Jim Thorpe office building uh, that is to the south and west of the Capitol was built with oil revenues, and so was the uh, so was the armory just down the street that was built in the 1938-1939 timeframe. Before we kind of start to wrap up here and get into our guests today. I think it's important we also talk a little bit about the inside of the Capitol. And over the year, when the Capitol was finished, it was really just white floors and white walls. There wasn't a lot to see other than the ornamental plaster in the building. And, uh, and of course, we had beautiful marble floors. The marble was quarried in Alabama. We had uh, the wall bases and stairways. That marble came from, uh, that marble came from Vermont. And beautiful ornamental plaster, but not really much was painted at the time. And it We finally started in the 1930s to start to add art in and around the building. So in 1930, we add the tribute to the Romantic Writers of the Range sculpture on the exterior of the building that was done by Constance Whitney Warren. I have to tell all of you out there who are going to go look at the plaque on that statue that's on the South Plaza that the plaque is false. There's not really much true about that other than the artist. Uh, It says it was dedicated by Will Rogers, and that's not the case. So... Alfalfa Bill Murray, not a big fan of Will Rogers, and so Will never got up to to uh, uh, dedicate that statue. It wasn't even really formally dedicated until I think I don't think it was Johnston Murray. It was 1957. It was finally 
uh, formally dedicated. But then on the inside, we start to add art. In 1928, we have the Propatria Triptych, which is the three murals on the inside right up above the Grand Staircase. And that, that pays homage to our soldiers who fought in World War I. And in fact, there's over 2,700 names that are written on those murals of Oklahomans who died in World War I. And that was donated by Frank Phillips, painted by Gilbert White in Paris. And that was a big major addition to the Capitol. And then we finally start to get more art. Charles Banks Wilson in the fourth floor rotunda, an artist from Miami, Oklahoma, who did the four portraits. So we have Jim Thorpe, we have Robert S. Kerr, we have Sequoia and Will Rogers. And then up at the top, those wonderful murals telling the, the story of the history of Oklahoma starting in the 1500s and working their way in a clockwise fashion all the way to the statehood era. Well, and fortunately for us, Betty um, Price. Price, thank you. Betty Price was head of the Oklahoma Arts Council. Governor Nye had appointed her to that position, and there were federal funds becoming available uh, for art. And so Betty was able to to encourage legislators and others to donate, and they started on those projects, and that added tremendously to the art. I still give tours of the Capitol where I can just go in and pay pick four or five paintings and tell the story of Oklahoma history. And Charles Banks Wilson, the great muralist from Miami, uh, did such a good job on those those four murals around the rotunda. It tells the story of Oklahoma largely from, from European exploration all the way through the 1980s. But it's wonderful art, and Charles Banks was a gifted artist. Yes, and in 1998, uh, another person who was really instrumental to adding art in the Capitol was Senator Charles Ford, and he forms up a nonprofit group that begins commissioning art pieces to tell the story of the history of Oklahoma. I'm happy to say today, after the, the restoration of the Capitol has been completed as of 2022, and we had a million dollars in art and public places funds that was used to enhance the art in the building, add more art to the building, the Capitol will be the largest public art museum in the country, or in the state after all of the art is added in and all the newly commissioned pieces come in. Let's talk a little about the addition of the dome. So uh, Governor Frank Keating is who we have to, to thank for that. And one of his big uh, initiatives was the beautification of the area, not just the Capitol itself, but the area around the Capitol and Lincoln Boulevard and saying we have to have we have to think better of ourselves, and we have to do things a little bit better. And Governor Keating, you know, thankfully, he said, we have to finish our capital. It's not a good message for Oklahoma to have an unfinished capital. In that, in that dialogue, it started during Henry Bellman's administration in the 80s. I remember G.T. Blankenship uh, um, and, and others saying, we've got to do something about it. But it never really took hold. Uh, and so it was an issue when he comes along, but people may not remember it. There were a few old motels still surviving on North Lincoln, and there were ladies of the night making a living there that we don't want to describe too carefully. At least I've heard that. Right. Uh, but anyway, you could you could spot it when you're driving north, and it was a depressed area. And people like Jim Hamilton in the House of Representatives, Senate before that, saw what state agencies were paying for rent around Oklahoma City. He said, why not bring them back in to the Capitol? Let's do Lincoln Renaissance. That became the term. Is that let's fix up the area as well as the Capitol itself, bring these agencies back in, use their rent money, 
to, to pay off bonds. And out of that comes the idea with the Supreme Court move out. Uh, they wanted our building, the old historical building, built in 1930. Designed by Solomon Layton. Designed Layden. by Solomon, thank you. And so what do you do with the historical society? Well, that led to the history center being built that we opened in 2005. Then that led to cleaning up Lincoln Boulevard and planting those beautiful trees and, and the landscaping and the parking and just approving it. But it, it just shows that the State Capitol Complex has always been evolving since the very beginning. Once this site was chosen, it's never been static. And Governor Keating is the one who says, hey, I'm going to do this. And he raised most of the money, not all of it, but most of it was privately raised. And uh, they found a way to do it. Frank Short Ambrugio was involved in the architecture. Flint Co. and Manhattan created a unique partnership to build that, I remember at the time. And watching that at the dedication and... It gave everyone a sense of, yes, we can do this. We can have something better. And if I recall correctly, it's the first dome added to a building since the U.S. Capitol Dome was put on during the, or added to during the Lincoln administration in the 1860s. And so this was a, this was a big, big deal to be able to get our dome on the building. One of the things I'm excited about is you mentioned our state capitol museum in the ground floor of the capitol. Well, that old stained glass that used to be part of the saucer dome before the dome was built, was it had been put in storage. We were able to rescue it and uh, through the restoration project and restore it. I have to give a shout-out to Tim Brown out of uh, Edmond, Oklahoma, who did such a good job on the re restoring all the stained glass in the building. And then we were able to put it in in that foyer, in that entry area, into the Capitol Museum. So it is it came home after 20 years, mm -hmm. and that was really exciting to see. And one thing I like about it, and uh, we put a, a voting machines and ballot boxes right underneath that. So that's a symbol of the state capitol from the earliest days, and right below it is the reason that we have a state capitol, so people can vote, elect their representatives, and have this republic, you know, this democracy. And it's all right there in that opening exhibit. And then you go and you see the story one direction on the history of government, the other side, the story of the capitol itself. But I would encourage people to go out and see that, and then soon they'll be able to see a film. That's right, and that's one of the reasons we're talking about the Capitol today. We had a, uh, we've had the opportunity to commission a great documentary film about the history of the Capitol, about the restoration of the building, but not only that, about why do we have a Capitol and what is the importance of this building. And Bob, you and I both got to be interviewed for this documentary and, and interviewed many other incredible Oklahomans. And I'm so excited about it because uh, it really crystallizes, you know, having a democracy and this place we can go and we can have our voice heard. And uh, we have some incredible folks who have participated in this. Bob Ross with the In As Much Foundation was, uh, provided the funding for this. And then Brian Beasley, who's a great film director who grew up in Oklahoma, lives in Los Angeles, uh, was, uh, was the one who put this all together. And so uh, we, have, uh, we have some great folks to talk to, and uh, we're going to talk to Bob and Brian. So let's get into it. All right. Bob, I'm excited for our guests that we have with us today. We have a couple of uh, really fun and great people to be with, and I've had a chance to work with them over the past year or so, a couple of years since I've been here at the OHS, and I know you've had a chance to work with them uh, even before that, when you were the director of the Oklahoma Historical Society, 
and I couldn't be more excited to welcome them into the podcast. First of all, we have Bob Ross. Bob is a fourth-generation Oklahoman. He currently serves as chairman and CEO of the Inasmuch Foundation, and that foundation was founded by Edith Kinney Gaylord in 1982. They focus on education, health, community, and journalism. He was previously an attorney with McAfee and Taft. He is a graduate of Bishop McGinnis Catholic High School and Washington and Lee University. And he also received a bachelor's in business administration and his Juris Doctorate from the University of Oklahoma College of Law in 1999. And our other guest, Brian Beasley, is a native Oklahoman who studied at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts, earning a bachelor's degree in film and television. After graduation, he made the move to Los Angeles and has had the good fortune to work in film, television, and theater. Brian is a renowned photographer and has photographed celebrities in music, film, television, and sports. And in addition to making the documentary Unconquered, he has directed other documentaries about Oklahoma, including The Battle of Honey Springs and The The Long Road to Liberty. So, gentlemen, welcome into the podcast. It's so great to have you with us. Great to be here. Great to be here, Trey. Hey, Bob. How are you today, Brian? Fantastic. Well, I want to start out, Bob... Can you, uh, and I have to distinguish between our Bobs here, so I'm going to go Bob Ross. Can you tell us a little bit about the Inasmuch Foundation? Because you guys do such great work here in Oklahoma City and in in the state uh, in general. So it would be great if you could kind of educate us about what you guys do, why you exist. Absolutely. Well, it's great to be here. Um, First of all, uh, being with Trade and Bob Blackburn, it's just a real pleasure. And uh, we're big supporters um, of Oklahoma history. Uh, and you all lead uh, our uh, historic efforts here in the state. So it's just wonderful to be here. And then Brian Beasley, uh, my best friend, uh, living living out in Los Angeles, but he and I have gone to school together um, in Oklahoma City, and we did Boy Scouts together. We were Eagle Scouts together. Uh, we've known each other since we were probably five years old. So it's um, great to be on the podcast with Brian. It's, it's awesome to be able to work with him. Um, you know, directing, producing uh, all of these, uh, all of these wonderful films. The foundation, Inasmuch Foundation, was started, like you said, trait by Edith Kinney Gaylord. Um, Edith, uh, her family were, of course, the pioneering Gaylord family who um, uh, had the newspaper, the Oklahoman in Oklahoma City, and they had uh, television and radio, uh, a lot of uh, various investments in Oklahoma City and, and around the country. And Edith was herself a real pioneer in journalism. She was the first woman on the general news staff of the Associated Press and worked in New York and Washington, D.C. And uh, the best story about that is she became uh, best friends with Eleanor Roosevelt while she was working out there in D.C. She was, of course, the first lady who um, was the first first lady to call her own press conferences. And, of course, she required women to cover those, and Edith was working for the AP, and so they they hit it off real quick. But the foundation was started by Edith uh, with the help of my father, who was her longtime lawyer and her her dad's uh, longtime lawyer, and um, they got that started in 1982. And um, Edith passed away in 01 and fully funded the foundation in 03, uh, providing a gift uh, of about $350 million at the time. Uh, so fast forward 20 years, we've given away, as of this spring, uh, this April will mark uh, the day that we have given away as much as Edith gave us, and we have six hundred million dollars in the bank. Wonderful! So it's been a it's been a great thing to uh, honor Edith and continue her legacy. Uh, but we've been able to do some great things uh, at the foundation, and and part of that is working with you guys. 
Uh, I met Bob Blackburn when he was raising money for this very building right here that we sit in, and um, and we wanted to make a gift. And Dad and I came out and had several meetings uh, with Bob, and um, we ended up making a gift uh, for one of the galleries uh, down on the first floor. Uh, but the fun story really begins. I, I heard he suckered you into a statue. <laughs> but the, the fun story really begins when when we bought the statue out front, and I'll let Bob tell more about that. But. We became really uh, fun and fast friends uh, because of that effort. But it really started with the fundraise for the building. Well, and Trey, let me add, on the role of the Enosmash Foundation in quality of life in central Oklahoma is incomparable. No other foundation has made the impact as in as much. And Edith Kenny Gaylord, if she was alive today, would be so proud of what Bill Ross, your dad, and Bob, and the entire staff have done. It's a very professional organization, and, and they do it from the heart. It, does, will this help the community? Yes. And it was the same way with the History Center. One of the first major donors, I wanted to have six major donors at 500000 and above, and as much said, yeah, we'll be one. And then later, I'll never forget, Bob said, well, what more can we do? And I, I said, know hey, it. I said, wait a minute, I do Thank have you. something up my sleeve. And it was that, Funny you should it, ask. It was that the unconquered. Of course, that was the last piece of sculpture done by Alan Hauser before he passed away out in Santa Fe. And it's called Unconquered, the unconquered spirit of the Oklahoma uh, story. And uh, the Apaches were the last of the tribes to be removed to Oklahoma, 1892, as prisoners of war. So they had all these challenges. But yet, Alan Hauser's dad, Sam Hauser's accomplished so much. Later, when I met Brian, we worked on the film on, on Sam Jesus as well as Alan. But buying that statue helped brand the organization, mm. the donation to the gallery helped us pull together the exhibits. And then on top of that, the Innismash Foundation has been helping every year with the grant to make sure that every school child can come to this museum without pain. So every year, because of that continuing grant, We've had hundreds of thousands of students come through this museum understanding the story of Oklahoma, looking at these heroes and, and listening to the stories of challenges yep. and opportunities. The Yellow Bus Brigade. They, exactly. come, they get on the Yellow Bus. Well, that is such a great reflection, and I, it just the thought popped into my mind. All We're here today because of Unconquered, the statue, and, 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 and that's why we're all sitting here, um, and I'll tell you why. Yes, Bob did talk us in. Dad and I came out and asked what what more, and he said we really need this statue. And so, we went out to the Hauser compound in Santa Fe, and um, and selected the statue, and it was brought here. and And of course, um, it's now graces the entrance of the museum. But then Bob Blackburn had the great, wonderful idea of doing a documentary on Alan Hauser and his life. And we had lunch at the museum cafe, and he pitched me this idea. And pitched dad, uh, dad and I were there together with Bob Blackburn. Well, we said, of course. I said, except one caveat. We approve everything, but Brian Beasley has to be the director. And Bob Blackburn was like, great. I don't know who you're talking about, but who? whoever you th- who, <laughs> that sounds great. And so then Bob, then Brian Beasley has a great story about that. But, but that has led to all these other films, you know, that yeah. buying that statue, yeah. t- telling that story has led to all these other films. So Brian, mm-hmm. that's a perfect segue into talking a little bit about you and your history and uh, you're Oklahoma born and bred from Oklahoma city. And uh, you, you grew up and, and Bob Ross is your best friend. 
But I'd yep. love to hear a little bit more about how your career and how you get to where you're going, because quite frankly, I think your life is pretty fascinating and the things that you've been <laughs> able to do. And if you, you you should follow Brian's Instagram page, because every other week he's photographing some celebrity out there. And it's just uh, it's incredible. So tell us a little bit about how you got into this. Yeah. So, I mean, exactly uh, how the two Bobs described it. I, I get this phone call. And uh, Bob Ross was like, hey, uh, I know you're coming to Oklahoma next week. I think I was coming for a wedding. This is probably like 2014, something like that. Uh, or no, 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 this would have been like 2008, right? Yeah, earlier. Um, yeah, for sure. Early, I was going to yeah. say 2008 and, or 2009. And uh, the film, I think the film came out in 2009. So this would have been like, yeah, summer of 08 or something like that. And uh, so, yeah, I, 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 up at that point, I'd never directed a documentary before. I had done lots of music videos. Uh, you know, my photography career was, was in full swing, uh, but directing wise, I mean, when I came out to, when I graduated NYU film school and I came out to, to, uh, Los Angeles, my thing was like, I'll direct traffic if they let me. Like, I was just like, yeah. I'm not going to say no to anything when it comes to directing. And, uh, like I said, I've done some music videos. I've done a lot of theater. Um, so I was building my resume, but it was, I was still quite green when it came, uh, to, to directing anything, quite honestly. And, so I come, I come to Oklahoma City for this wedding. And Bob's like, listen, uh, we're going to meet with Dr. Bob Blackburn over the history, the new history, the brand new history. Got to go see it, and, um, and we're going to do this documentary on this on this artist. And I, I, I was like, okay, uh, can you tell me? He's like, we'll talk about it there. You don't need to know anything. Just show up. I'm like, great. So on the drive over to the Oklahoma History Center, which I've never been to before, I get a text from Bob. It's like, I can't make it. Uh, but you'll be fine. Just uh, tell them who you are uh, and meet with Dr. Blackburn and you'll be good to go. And I'm like, okay. And I'm thinking he told me uh, that we were going to meet like in the cafe. And so I, a complete novice that I was, I show up in like a t-shirt and jeans and I'm met at the front by, you know, a Dr. Bob assistant. They're like, oh, right this way. And they take me into the executive offices and I'll never forget walking into like a boardroom and there's Dr. Bob Blackburn, there's Dan Provo, I think Jeff Moore was in there. There's a whole bunch of, like, the board, basically, and they're all in suits. And I look like, I, I look like the biggest schmuck, honestly. <laughs> um, and I walk in, and they go, they go, Dr. Blackburn goes, so, I, I'm sure Bob Ross told you everything uh, that we're looking for, so how do you see this film? And I'm like, I don't even know what we're doing. I don't know who Alan Howes' name, I don't know who and I just turned it around and I go, how do you see the film? <laughs> and to totally, uh, to say the least, Dr. Blackburn saw right through that. And I, I definitely left, and you know, I, I kind of BS my way through the rest of the meeting. And I was like, no, I'll get my team together. But when I walked out of there, I was like, oh man, I, uh, I got to get back to LA and we got, I got to get my producers together and, we, and uh, oh, we're, we're going to lose this. Like the, I was not impressive in the room at all. And, uh, so yeah, that's exactly what I did. I got back to Los Angeles and I brought in the Slogan Brothers who were my producing partner at the time. And I remember we put together like a mock DVD and uh, <clears throat> I dived into the research. And, you know, honestly, and I, I mentioned this part too uh, at Dr. Blackburn's retirement party. I, I, I think he still wasn't 100% sure on me. But when we, the very first interview we did in Santa Fe at the compound was David Redding, who's the, uh, the main historian there and for the Allen Hauser family. 
And I interviewed him for like four hours. And I mean, we went deep on uh, really the meaning of, of Alan's art and his life. And, and I remember walking out of there and, and Bachman coming up to me, he was like, you did good kid. And I was like, ah, oh. but he sat in on the interview and he, he's never sat in on an interview since. So I was like, I was like, I, I, I passed from then on out. And that was the first of, of four films that we did together. So, wow. uh, but yeah, it, it, it was, it was, uh, you know, we had, we had to, we had to get our ducks in a row, but it's been, it's been amazing. It's been, it's real been, uh, amazing road working with, with everyone uh, on this podcast, honestly. Well, it's, it's, that's a great story. And, now we're looking at our um, what fourth, fifth film about yeah. Oklahoma history that, in as much has has been a big part of sponsoring, and uh, we the reason we're talking here today is we have a brand new film coming out, and this one's called The People's House, and it's about the history of the Oklahoma State Capitol. And so when I came on to the Oklahoma Historical Society after Bob's retirement. You guys were just finishing up the Battle of Honey Springs documentary. And I saw that documentary and I was just completely blown away. It's such a great documentary and it's going to be coming to OETA hopefully pretty soon. So everyone will get a chance out there to watch it. Of course, you can go to the Honey Springs Battlefield site and you can watch it out there too. But I, it, would, it just told such a, a unique story about Oklahoma in a compelling way. And so I think I'd known... Uh, Brian, I'd known you and Bob for about 15 minutes before I was like, hey, want to make another documentary? <laughs> I remember we were at dinner. Yeah, we were that at dinner great. together. And I said, listen, I'm just coming off. I've been, I worked on the state capital restoration project for a little over six years, six and a half years or so. And I just said, the story needs to be told. I'd seen some other documentaries about other state capitals. And I said, let me tell you about kind of a vision for making a film about the Oklahoma State Capitol. And I was so thrilled that these two people that I'd barely met were like, that sounds really cool. Let's do this. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's funny you say that because I called Bob and I was like, oh, Blackburn's retiring? Who's the new guy? We got, we got, we got to kick the new guy to dinner. <laughs> we were like, who's going to wait to get you to dinner and be like, we're ready. What's next? Absolutely, and that the 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 capital um, is such an important story to tell, and it's such a unique and exciting, really thrilling story about how the capital came to be. And so, I watched the uh, film last night. I know it's still in the editing phase, but it is incredible, you guys. The uh, animation is I had it's just it's spectacular, amazing. and really helps tell the story and. The drone shot is just mesmerizing at the beginning. I just am so proud of it. So well done. But both of those, uh, both of those aspects of the film are just so unique. I have to compliment Brian because Brian and his team, and I have to mention um, Jamie Roman and John Roman, who have done such a good job through this whole process. Brian got the vision immediately about the story we were trying to tell here, and and. I got to admit, if we're just making a, a documentary about a building, pretty boring. It could be boring. Yeah. There's no doubt. There is no <laughs> doubt. It could, you know, it could be a sleeper. But there's a, whole, there's a whole philosophy that goes into our Capitol building and why it exists and what happens there. And, and uh, Bob Blackburn, you're always so eloquent when you talk about, you know, the Capitol being, you know, this center of democracy where the people's voice is heard. And, you know... Getting that to come out in all of the interviews that we did and um, in, in all the shots that we got, and I, I've seen the rough cut of the film also, and 
folks, he nailed it. Yeah. He absolutely really nailed it. It's really Thank special. You. I can't believe it that this is a film about a building. It is the most <laughs> I mean, let's talk about the animation. Whose idea was that bees and where or, did that know, come from? That is the coolest deal, uh, coolest way well, to tell the story. That. You know, it uh, when he when you pitched it to us, Trey, we're at dinner, the three of us, you pitched it to us. I, every time a movie's pitched to me, I'm like, I, if I, I have to see it, like a, a film is a visual medium. And if I, if it doesn't like immediately start, you know, gestating visually in my brain, then I know that I'm not right for that project. And you're right. At first, it's like this building, the building is beautiful, the neoclassical, uh, you know, this, this massive uh, uh, building there. Uh, it, it's very picturesque. Uh, so th- there was never an issue there, but it's like, you can't just keep showing the same photo or photos from a hundred years ago uh, of the of the of the same building over and over again. You're right; it becomes, as Bob said, a, a sleeper. And I was like, animation can really lend itself to this. And it wasn't just even the animation of the building. I mean, it was the animation of the history that's happening around the building, the history that's happening around the state, and uh, you know why the building was picked uh, to, to be erected where it was, and how long it took, and all the all the different uh, infighting, whether it be it should be built in Guthrie or should be built in Oklahoma City. And all of that can kind of come alive uh, through animation. And w- you had mentioned another film that we'd all done together called The Long Road to Liberty. And, and A Long Road to Liberty, which was made during uh, complete COVID lockdown, um, we used animation. We used kind of a different style of animation uh, to tell the Claire Looper story. And I thought it was extraordinarily effective because uh, especially in that in that film, because there's only so many photos of the sit-ins and stuff like that, and they've been used over and over and over again. And I did use those photos, but the animation brings what's happening, brings those photos to life. And there was no shortage of photos when it came to the Capitol. There, uh, you know, the the archives that you have there on the Capitol are extensive. So I, I knew that we could kind of lean on that. But it's like to bring to have the animation kind of bring these photos to life. And you know, there's one really great. Uh, photo of the groundbreaking. There's a few photos of the groundbreaking uh, when they w- when they went out there and uh, the governor at the time and the builders and they put the pitch uh, the the pitch axe and the and the shovels in the ground. And I was like, what if we animated it? Like, let's be there. Let's like let's like have the camera move back and you actually see the photographer taking the photo that we're we're about to show you or we may have just shown you. And and the other thing about animation is that it brings the colors to life. And you can really, not only are you having movement of the characters and we're bringing these historical figures to life, but then you, you can bring the colors of the day uh, to bear visually. Um, and so it really was the first thing that kind of jumped in my head when it was pitched to me. It was like, let's really, let's, let's jump onto some animation and really bring it to life. And uh, going back to the, the Romans, Jamie and John, brother and sister producing team, they had worked with uh, Luke out of Ireland and his whole team, they, it was amazing what they were able to bring together. And it was a great part of it. It's a, it's a certain kind of animation, and the word escapes me exactly what it is. But they had done some of this stuff for museums in Europe, but it had never been done here in the United States. And I was like, this is even perfect. Like, we kind of have this proven uh, animation technique that's working well in the museum setting, but it's never been done here in the States. And we're going to, you know, we'll be the, fir- this will be the first film that, that brings that to a museum here. Uh, in Oklahoma. It's very exciting stuff. You know, when I look at this project, and especially in, in the rearview mirror, something's happened. And you look back and you think, this was meant to be. This is one of those projects that was meant to be. Because if you think about the capital rule of law, 
Bob, your dad lived rule of law, mm-hmm. and he was an attorney, felt strongly rule of law. How do you use that to make the society work? Well, that starts at the Capitol. That starts with government. That's us saying together, we want to be governed. We want quality of life. What can we do together that we can't do individually? So that brings your dad into the story, but it also takes us back to the first time I met your dad there in the First National Bank building because I told him that day, I said, we want this building to look right onto artifact number one. And he said, what's artifact number one? I said, the state capitol. It's the one thing in our state that binds us together, whether we're Cimarron County, Choctaw County, Tillman County. That is something that we all share. And this is a state that was settled like a patchwork quilt. Different times, different people. The diversity here is unlike anything in the country. But yet the capital is what binds us together, that rule of law in trying to do something better. And then when Trait was assigned, a new Trait already, he was assigned to this project, he and I worked together on a number of press conferences or like on that pickaxe. I brought the real pickaxe from I our remember. collections. I, remember. I had the white glove. I ended up on the front page of the of the paper, but I, I saw what Trait was doing. And Trait really wanted this to work well. And, and near the end of it, Trait came to me and said, we've got some, some funds. We've got the space. Let's do a museum. So we have an extension of the History Center in the state capitol, a museum exhibit similar to what we have here, telling a story through artifacts, through graphics, through stories. That binds all of this together. And then Brian's experience with us, working on four films, he was used to to understanding what we're trying to do. So in a way, the four of us, along with your dad, uh, Bill Ross, it all we all were on the stage of history at the right time mm-hmm. to get this done, and uh, it will serve this community forever if people understand why it's important. People get pretty disenchanted with government mm-hmm. in general, and the opinion of whether it's Congress or the legislature, the president or the governor, or whatever, is typically fairly low in America. That's something that's not new, but people kind of resent that centralized authority. But to show the public why we have government, why we have elected officials, why we need to work together, why we need to improve the quality of life. That comes through in this film as it does in the exhibit, the capital itself, the exhibits here. So this was one of those projects that I really consider it was meant to be. Uh, Brian, you mentioned the drone shot, and I want or uh, Bob had mentioned the drone shot, and I want to go back to that a little bit because yes. this was something that I had uh, had as an idea, and I didn't know how it would work because I had watched the HBO episode of Hard Knocks with the Dallas Cowboys, where you saw the drone shot that went all the way through the Dallas Cowboys practice complex up in Frisco, Texas, and that that shot went viral. It was it was unique. It was everybody was talking about it at the time, and I th- I thought, what if we could do something similar to that in the state capitol? Because the state capitol is a four hundred fifty thousand square foot building. How do you show off the building in the way that it really deserves to be showed off? And I said, uh, Brian, could we do something a little bit like that? And Brian <laughs> said, Well, let's just call those guys who did that <laughs> shot. <laughs> And uh, and I don't think that we knew like how expensive that would be, Bob. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think that's probably the the most expensive part of the whole it documentary. Is. Yes, but it's going to blow people away. You want to talk about that a minute or two? Yeah, and I'll let Brian <clears throat> tell the story. But um, I, normally, once uh, the foundation approves the you know approves the plan, approves the you know t- uh, the budget. 
you know, I don't hear back again uh, in, until the application process is done. But Brian called me several times. He's like, well, we've got something that's going to be really expensive, but it's going to be really cool. So we'll, uh, I'm like, well, let me guess. We need more money. How'd yeah, you know? <laughs> so in typical fashion, I was like, Brian, just make it as as make the movies as awesome as you can and trade. You all, you all were onto something because it truly is special. But I'll let Brian tell the story because it's it's really neat. And, and going off exactly what you said, Bob, this is what makes you a great executive producer. <laughs> yeah, you're always. I'll pitch stuff to him. He's like, "Will it make it cool?" I'm like, "Yes, it'll make it so cool." Then we'll do it. Then yeah, I will find the money and we'll do it. I love that. Yeah, I remember. I remember you you uh, sending me and Jamie uh, the 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 clip from the Dallas Cowboys and and. I, there was a little bit of a a little bit of a, a, a hiccup on the side of like I'm like yeah we can do this and then I talked to Jamie I'm like can we do this how do you do it? and it was really I'll give credit where credit is due Jamie was the one who's like why don't we just hire them I was like can we do that and uh, they're called they're called Sky Candy they're out of Minnesota and they're they are amazing they, they were the nicest like, guys and they came so, from they came from so Dubai nice. to Oklahoma City yes. to do that shot yes. it was they like, were shooting are you kidding me? they were shooting all the stadiums for the World Cup and yeah they the were World like Cup, yeah we can right. fit you yeah we can fit you in between the World Cup and uh, the opening of the next baseball season we'll come to because then after they left us they went and shot. Uh, or no, the they, football season. They went and shot uh, Kansas, Kansas City, City Stadium. Play. Yeah, Arrowhead. Yeah, Arrowhead, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we had them for two days, and uh, they were not cheap. But what they do is extraordinarily specialized, and they go back to a word we've already used, super cool. And uh, it was it was, uh, it was was its own little production. Like I mean, it's, a, it's its own little film, and uh, we're going to release it ahead of time. Uh, this four-minute drone shot will be like a, a short film that will – released a few weeks before we released the main film in May. And it's exactly what we're kind of describing. We start outside and the drone flies through the uh, platoon number one and it goes uh, into the security gates and it goes through the basement and comes back out, goes up around unconquered and uh, and then uh, not unconquered uh, around the guardian and then, and then back through the front door. Matter of fact, we actually cast trait to open the front door. And it's Flies right through the front door on one take. It actually uh, hit him in the in the rear side. Got hit in the booty uh, with the drone. Yeah. Uh, hey. Got hit in the booty with the drone. And you know, it's a little when, fun uh, fact. We were, yeah, <laughs> we were we were so you know we're we're pretty far away. The drone pilot today, and I'm watching it on a monitor. And he goes, "Oh, I just hit someone." And I go, "Oh my god, who did you hit?" And I thought it was one of our extras, or even maybe it could have been worse. You know, one of our some random person walked through the the, the capital because they don't they never close the capital, so it was open while we were doing this. And he goes, I look and he goes, oh, that's Trait. He's our producer. We're good. We can, if we're going to hit anyone, hit him. Yeah, the, just uh, Trait. No, no big deal. Nobody else. Nobody else. Uh, but we cast 70 extras, uh, you know, playing different roles. Is like when we go into the Supreme Court, we have uh, lawyers debating. Uh, and we head into uh, the front steps. You see like a news crew and they're doing like a news report. We've got a, uh, a tour of, 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 of a high school tour that kind of like we see we kind of check up on them. We see them like a few different times as we go through the as we go through the Capitol and there are different sections. And then we end with uh, the governor signing a bill. And what was the, the best, my favorite, favorite, favorite part of the drone shot is that I and the three of us, Bob, Bob, Trino, we got to cast our families. Like my entire family came out. Uh, when Frank and I, yeah, my son bill, Frank uh, is on the front and, row. And, and Trey's back there with his family. But my you know, it was really cool to, to like 
bring some of the family friends and my entire family to come out and they actually get to be in a film. They got to see what I do. Um, and as my brother said, my younger brother, he's like, Oh, so directing is just you bossing people around. You've been doing that since we were kids. <laughs> Brian, <laughs> normal. Brian, this is Bob. Uh, one thing I've learned about your creative ability, you're a great writer and a storyteller. And I recognize that from that first film on Unconquered. But uh, as a storyteller, as you looked at the story of the Capitol, what was your favorite individual story? Not in terms of production, but in terms of relevance or interest. I get really, uh, and you know, we start off with this, and I mean, you and Trader, the two historians that we focus on interview-wise, was just the battle between Guthrie and Oklahoma City. I know uh, what other state can say that there was, you know, the, there was all this backdoor channeling and there's, you know, there's the mystery of like, was the state seal stolen? And again, going back to the animation, we bring all of that to life. And there's, uh, you know, uh, all the all the backdoor politicking and, uh, you know, uh, you know, we had one guy running the newspaper and the governor and they didn't like each other. It, it sounds like a story that could be told today, quite honestly. Uh, but it was happening back then. And what an interesting, it also kind of just proved like, and Trey talked about this of like the wild, wild west, like just how Oklahoma's roots are are really kind of like uh, embedded in that wild, wild west feeling and just uh, the craziness and, and the way the capital uh, started was no different. Brian, we got a who's who of people to appear in our documentary, and I'm excited. We had so many great Oklahomans who participated. You want to name some names about who uh, people can expect to see in there? Well, we got Governor Nye. We've got we've got a few governors. We have, you know, Governor Stitt makes an appearance. Uh, Governor uh, Governor Nye, Governor Keating talks about you know putting the dome, a cap on it, as Blackburn says in it. Um, we have Governor Fallon coming in and kind of introducing the whole like this building was falling down around our ears. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we had to get the restoration going. Um, my favorite is uh, the tour guide Bill. Uh, who's been giving tours there, I think, since the year 2000. He brought a, he brought a, a, a really fantastic uh, viewpoint of, of, like, you know, the smell of the, of yeah, the building yeah. was a major thing of, like, maybe we should fix the plumbing. Um, Marilyn and, Looper, uh, Clara's, uh, Clara's Marilyn, yeah, daughter. Guys, yeah. That was powerful, Brian. That was really powerful. It was. Yeah, we've got, you know, Marilyn Looper, Dwayne Mass, Capital Architect. Jack Baker brings in mm -hmm. some of the tribal uh, history into Oklahoma. Amber Sharples, the director of the Arts Council. It's yep. just a, it's just a whole Dr. Sunu Kodamthara, who uh, listeners of this podcast will know because she was on our podcast just a couple of months ago. But I just a, film with her. Just oh, she she was fantastic, but just a who's who. Bob Blackburn was in it. Great, uh, you were in it. I was in <laughs> it too. Hey guys, so. I was in it. I was <laughs> silent, but you I, were, and you did an incredible job. I felt like it was really good. But yeah. thank you for saying you so were great. channeling Charlie Chaplin. You, you clap like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> they'll keep that. They'll keep him silent. I'm I'm just good. I'm like a statue in the corner. And I'm excited about our narrator, too, because uh, John Erling is going to narrate it, and he is our partner with the Voices of Oklahoma Oral History Pro Project. And listeners out there will know the longtime, uh, longtime anchor at uh, KRMG in the mornings there in Tulsa. And so we were really, really excited to get John's voice into this. Real Oklahoma term to sure. Absolutely. And, uh, and it is – it was – so neat how you pull different stories. You threaded different stories through the history of a building. 
and that's what this, you know, that's what the job is of the historians is, you know, to find the not just ju- not just the facts, but really make it come to life. And that's what y'all did in the film. You really you made it come to life. You've made us proud Oklahomans. Um, you told stories that were old, but some stories that were new. And I don't know. I just uh, was real proud after I finished watching it. Brian, do you want to give a hint about our end credit scene? Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we can go. Yeah, we have a we have a nice little uh, button, as they call it. Uh, so when the credits roll, don't get up and walk away. There's a little bit extra. Um, but uh, we'll give a hint that there was actually a movie that was shot in the 70s. Uh, and so you get to see you get to see a little bit of and it's like a full on action scene. Uh, so, uh, Trey did a great job of kind of bringing that to light. We were able to uncover it. And so we give you a little, a little taste of some seventies B movie action at the, during the credits. I, I was pretty shocked an actor could fall from that height and, sur- <laughs> and well, I guess survive, walk away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it, it, it's exciting stuff. A little bit of a shootout in the Capitol. Yeah. So, that's a nice tease. That's yeah. a nice tease. There's a, a, ma- a massive stunt. Well, I have to say to both of you as we're wrapping up here, thank you both so much. First of all, Bob Ross, thank you for buying into the vision of this, for in as much um, funding this project and getting this is going to educate generations of Oklahomans about the history of the state capitol. So not only are we going to get this on OETA, uh, we're going to get it into film festivals across the country. We're going to premiere it, but we're also going to have it playing in the Capitol Museum. And so people will be able to see this for years to come. Of course, we'll get it on YouTube and all those other kinds of things. But this is going to help people understand the importance of this building, not just this year or next year, but in years to come. And Brian, thank you so much for you. You really got it. You know, you understood that this wasn't just about a building, but it was what the building represents. And and that came through loud and clear in the documentary. So thank you both so much for for really understanding what we wanted to do here. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be here and pleasure to help. It it totally was. So uh, these are these are my favorite projects. What are we going to do next? We got to come up with something. Yeah, what do we do? Uh, any of the listeners out there, send in some, send in some requests. Some requests. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, just wrapping up, um, Bob, where can people find out more information about the InasMuch Foundation? Well, you can go on our website, www.inasmuchfoundation.org. That's a good start. And we're also on social media channels, uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Brian, how about you? Where can people keep up with you? Yeah, uh, Instagram is the best. Brian Beasley photo. Yeah, give me a follow. Yeah, you won't regret it. He's a fun follow, folks. Yeah, it's easier to list who what movie star Brian has not met because he's <laughs> met them all. That's exactly right. Well, thanks to both of you, what you've done for Oklahoma history and trait. Good job with the state capitol. Uh, the state owes you a debt of gratitude for making sure that was done well. No scandals. Uh, every penny was well invested. And uh, so uh, thank you as well. Hey, it oh, is Oklahoma, so we have to say that, right? <laughs> I mean, you know. That's right. That's right. And, and go buy Trait's book. I mean, the film is basically based on Trait's book. What is the name of the book? What is, what is it called? It's called, easily enough, The Oklahoma State Capitol. And it's uh, published by Arcadia Publishing. And you guys can come to the History Center and buy a copy or 
in the state capital gift shop or Amazon uh, will have it as well. So it's a good, good place to go also. Well, thank you all so much. This has been a lot of fun and uh, we'll look forward to movie premieres and promoting this in the future. Fantastic. Thanks guys. Goodbye. Well, Bob, you can really tell when you talk to Bob and Brian just how much they enjoy each other's company. You can tell they've been best friends forever. They work really well together, and we got to be the beneficiaries of that here at the Oklahoma Historical Society. That's right. You can see that they trust each other. Uh, once, you know, we, we create a challenge. You know, what can you do with a video on this topic, whether it's unconquered in, in the story of Alan Hauser, the story of Honey Springs, or the Capitol? throw that challenge and together they can come up with a vision and they did in this particular sense and I cannot wait for the public to see this film. I'm right there with you for that. Well Bob as always it's been so great talking to you today and I can't wait for our next podcast. I will see you then. You've been listening to a very okay podcast hosted by Trey Thompson and Dr. Bob Blackburn. The podcast is produced by the Oklahoma Historical Society. Visit us at okhistory.org and find us on social media by searching for at okhistory. I encourage you to purchase a membership to OHS to help us continue our mission to collect, preserve, and share Oklahoma's unique and fascinating history.